right, for today, we're going to try to finish this ongoing series we've been doing. It's not an ideal way to do a, a Bible study series. Uh, we've, I think this is our fifth study, but uh, we've stretched it over two years because of the uh, quarterly nature of the breakfast. So um, it's hard only because of all parts of this study are interconnected and what we're going to be studying today is really based on what we previously studied and it's hard to kind of hold all that in mind over a period of two years. So I'm just going to briefly review for a moment what we have covered already and then we'll look at this final section on the biblical woman glorified this morning. So we've, we're, we're doing an overview really of a woman from from a biblical perspective rather than the world's perspective. We broke that down into these sections. Um, woman defined, designed, fallen, redeemed, and then today glorified. Uh, in the defined segment, the, the main point of, of that first study was that because God created woman, just like he did, of course, man and all other things, uh, because he created us, he has the exclusive right to define us. Uh, the world around you is consistently, constantly, and with um, increasing pressure because of the influence of, of uh, media, various kinds of media, internet media, television media, movies, all of those things. Um, the world around you, as Paul describes in Romans 12 is constantly trying to squeeze you into its mold. Uh, the way the world would want you to think of yourself as a woman. Uh, but God has that exclusive right and only him because he made you. Just like if you were to make some artistic creation and someone came along and said, that means this. And uh, they can think that. They can believe that, but only you as the creator of that artistic work has the right to actually identify what it really means because it came from your heart, not from their heart. And as a woman, you came from the Lord's heart. Um, then we looked, uh, we looked for one study at, at uh, or it might have been, I might have split this into two studies. Uh, I don't remember, but um, we, we focused on what it means that you were designed by the Lord and we focused on four specific aspects, two which relate to uh, the relationship you have with God and two that relate to the relationship you are intended to have with your husband. And we identified that God designed you in his relationship with himself to bear his image and to share uh, with the man uh, dominion over God's creation and how that's meant to look in the practicality of your life as you live it in this world. And then uh, in regards to your relationship with your husband, we saw that God had a design for that as well in that he has designed you to be a companion and a helper to your husband. And uh, we, we uh, tried to distinguish between uh, wrong concepts of what it means to be companion and what it means to be helper and the, uh, the biblical perspective about that. Then uh, we introduced, as the story of the Bible of course does, how the fall, the sin in the garden uh, affected this original definition, this original design that God had for you and how that was warped, that was, that was mangled, that was that was affected by the fall. Uh, and we, we tried to understand just how deep that impact of the fall really goes, um, what specific areas it, it uh, relates to womanhood in contrast and comparison to men. Uh, There's some similarities, of course, but uh, the biblical account makes a specific emphasis in these two areas. Uh, not just in a general sense of, you know, we're now, because of the fall, we were all uh, made sinners, but uh, the specific areas as it relates to womanhood were uh, the woman was more susceptible to deception and um, 
how that affected her relationship with God. And then um, in the relationship with her husband, uh, again, these two primary relationships being in focal point, uh, there being a contrary desire that grew in the woman's heart because of the influences of sin and that contrary desire meaning uh, the desire to be in charge, the desire to not recognize that God had established a specific order of authority according to his kingdom purposes. Uh, then in uh, our most recent study, we looked at the biblical woman redeemed and the two great changes that the Lord uh, brought about in our experience of what we call salvation. And those two great changes are, of course, regeneration and sanctification. Regeneration in which the Lord gave you a completely new heart, therefore making you a completely new woman. And sanctification in which from the moment you were regenerated forward, even though you were made a completely new woman, God continues to make you every single day that you walk with the Lord in a way that uh, pleases him and serves his purpose, you are progressively becoming a newer and newer woman. Um, that brings us to our final one, which is uh, the biblical woman glorified. This is mostly to do with future things. We're going to talk for a moment about uh, how glorification even has something to do with our present experience. But nevertheless, it's mostly about the future. It's about things you've never experienced fully yet. Um, these are things that are tied to the second coming of Christ, tied to the great resurrection, tied to the, the, the final and great change that the Lord will accomplish in your life experience. And I want you to just uh, consider for a moment before we look into the details of that, why it's so important for us to think about the future from God's perspective. Um, the Lord wants us to be present tense focused in our lives. He doesn't want us to be like, you know, the, the old saying, so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good, no, no ability to actually function in your life and take care of the many, many responsibilities that you have that fill your life. But there is the, the, the opposite side of that old saying, which is, so earthly-minded that you become no heavenly good. And really, I, I am convinced for believers that it's the, the second one is really the greater danger. Um, I've rarely met a believer that was so heavenly-minded that they were no earthly good. Um, in, my, in my pastoral observations of being a pastor for 35 years now, um, the, the people that were the most heavenly-minded that I've ever interacted with in the body of Christ were also the most earthly good, you know, because heavenly mindedness does not make you useless in this world. It makes you exactly the opposite. Uh, the greater extent of the problems that I've encountered in believers' lives and, and the majority of the counseling that I've had to do over the years is um, someone who is so earthly minded in, in their walk with the Lord that they're really they're really not heavenly perspective oriented enough. And so there's a, a great benefit. And it's one of the reasons why it's not the entire story of the Bible. It's not all of the material in the Bible, but so much of the Bible is pointing us toward the future. So much of what God has revealed to us is pointing us toward the end, the goal of where he's taking us. Even though we're not there yet, it's like, you've heard this, this description before. It's a great image. It's it's a biblical one. It's one that Paul the Apostle used more than once in his teaching. And that is uh, when, you're, when you're running a race in a competition, and, and the Christian life is described that way, there is a great benefit to, to setting your perspective on the finish line. If you don't have a perspective toward the finish line, you get so caught up in the next steps that you're taking that you can lose motivation and you can lose the energy that you need to to run strong to the very end. And so there's, a, there's a, a, a specific blessing that the Lord reserves for those that have this future orientation and are able to see where the Lord is taking them, able to incorporate that eternal perspective that's waiting for us at the end into our experience of what we're going through now. And it does strengthen us 
It encourages us, it exhorts us, it prepares us for what is between here and that final stage. So let's start this morning by looking at a passage, should be very familiar to all of you, in Romans chapter 8, certainly one of my personal favorite pair of verses in all of God's word. And I'll read from, I, it would be great to take time to read more than just these two, but I'll, I'll read these two verses, Romans eight twenty nine and 30. And here Paul is briefly summarizing the entire story of salvation. For, and this is what he writes in these verses is true of every true believer. None of us who truly know the Lord, who have been born again, are exempt from the point of these verses. But he's kind of uh, summarizing, big picture overview of all of the big aspects of our salvation. From eternity past to eternity future. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. This call here in this passage is a call to salvation. What the reformers called or described as an effectual call. The, that moment in your life when the Lord intervened when he interrupted the natural progression of your story in this world, he laid his hand upon you and he said, that's it. Your story is no longer going to end the way it would if I had never intervened. Instead, this is going to be your story, not just for the rest of your life here, but for the rest of eternity. That effectual call that saved us. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And then he shifts gears into verse 31 and beyond to talk about the love of God, which is really the backstory of everything in verses 29 and 30. But what I want you to notice is where the story of our salvation ends in verse 30. It ends with the experience of being glorified. Now, we have to, of course lean very heavily on what is revealed in Scripture to understand and comprehend that because there's not a one of us who have experienced what's being described here yet. It's future tense for us all, and so we, we comprehend it by faith. We comprehend it by the, by the grace that's contained within the revelation about the experience itself. And there are some passages which we'll look at this morning that uh, will kind of fill in the details, put some meat on the bones of the concept of glorification. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. So the idea is from, and, and I'm focusing just on you this morning as a, a woman of God, is what will being glorified mean for you as a woman? And will it be exactly what it will mean for me as a man? I will say this, there's no question about this, there's no doubt about this, it will be something very similar. It's not going to be like there's two levels of glorification, you know, the men are going to get the better half and the women are going to get the worse half of glorification. Uh, you will be as fully glorified as I will be and I will be as fully glorified as you will be. But because you were a woman, the question is, Will there be any distinctions, any differences? Will it affect you differently than it will affect me, even though we end up in a similar kind of wonderful eternal condition? So um, we're going to look at that. But what I want you to notice first is how Paul describes it. I want to read to you how many believers commonly read verse 30. You know, you might have had this experience. I'm sure you've had at least a few times. I've had the experience myself. I'm reading God's word, and even though the words are written a specific and purposeful way, there are many times I transpose the words into what I think it says rather than what it actually says. 
And this is why, of course, we study God's word rather than just read it. We read it. We should read it. That's the starting point of our understanding of God's word. But we need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We really need to focus on, on the details of it because there are many details that we'll miss just from a surface level reading. But here's, here's how a surface level reading of this passage uh, works out. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also uh, justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. And if that's what was said, that in and of itself would be awesome and wonderful. The promise, the sure and certain promise that's what, what's waiting for you in eternity is an experience of glorification. But he doesn't say he will also glorify. What does he say? He also, he, he also glorified, glorified in English, of course, is in past tense. Something, we're talking about something future that in a sense is already past. And that's, that's one of those points, and only the Lord is able to do these kind of things, that something future is past and something past is also still future. So what does it mean? What's the point of emphasis? Why, why is this significant? What's, what's the point that we're meant to get out of this? There is some critically important sense in which while glorification waits for you in eternity, while it's, it is a future experience, it's something you haven't experienced yet, Nevertheless, there is an aspect of glorification that you've already experienced, whether you fully get it, realize it, know it or not. If, you're a, if you belong to him, if you've truly been born again, then you have already, in some sense, been glorified. Not in the ultimate sense, that, that is tied to the second coming, but in a significant sense. So in what significant sense have you already been glorified? Let's... Let's leave Romans and head over to the book of 2 Peter. And we'll look in chapter 1 of 2 Peter. Uh, this passage I'm going to read, we did study this not terribly long ago, maybe five years ago, in our home church studies. Um, as we went through the, the book of 2 Peter. But this passage I'm going to read is, in my opinion the single most um, amazing, hard, almost hard to believe, passage in God's word in terms of what it implies, what it indicates. And then I have to also make sure we don't misunderstand and make more of it than what is actually being said. Second uh, Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Okay, I, I want you to notice that emphasis is not my main point in these two verses that I'm reading, but I do want you to notice it because it ties to our theme this morning that the Lord called you to, and it's a salvation call, in your experience of salvation, he called you to his own glory and excellence. So whatever we understand, whatever we're going to try to establish this morning in terms of what glorification means, let's be clear about this. It's not some isolated experience from the person and nature of God himself. He is, in a sense, calling you into a shared experience to some degree, to some extent, of his own glory and excellence. You know, word pictures sometimes fail to fully capture the concept, but I want you to think of it like this. I want you to imagine the Lord as he is in his fully glorified state sitting upon the throne of God today. And from that throne, he is literally radiating the essence of his own divine nature, every second, every moment, if you were in the presence of the Lord, you would see a radiant glory coming from him. And he, in calling you into salvation, has called you close enough to himself 
so that that radiant glory is hitting you and doing something to you. What does it do? What, it, what is just being in the immediate presence of the radiant glory of the Lord do to the person that's in that proximity of his own glory and excellence? Verse 4, by which, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. It simply means now that our experience that he just described and that I, I'm trying to help us to grasp, that experience of his glory and excellence is mediated, meaning you and I are not yet before the throne, literally, actually. I mean, spiritually, we're counted as in his presence because we belong to him. But we're not yet before his throne. We're not yet in the immediate proximity of the fullness of the one who is, who is radiating his, his glory and excellence. But he's given us great and precious promises which mediate that same experience to us so that we experience his glory and his excellence right now, not by traveling to the throne of God in heaven, but by opening the book and reading it. And when we soak in the true meaning of his words, then we're soaking in a measure of the experience of his glory and his excellence. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that, so that through them, through the promises, through the revealed word of God, you may become, and this is the part that I'm identifying as maybe the most hard to believe passage in all of God's word. It's just too awesome to describe it any other way for me. So that through them, through the promises of God, you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, uh, the wrong understanding of that verse, and there have been some offshoot so-called Christian groups that have misunderstood this, misapplied this, gone too far with it, become, uh, you know, you know uh, cross the line into serious doctrinal error. It, it doesn't mean that we become God or we become like gods. It doesn't mean that we, we, uh, we cross the line from humanity into divinity. But it does mean that something of God's own glory and excellence is transferred from him to us so that we partake of his divine nature. It remains his divine nature the entire time, but now we're partakers of it. And as partakers of it, it's like we have a saying in our culture. It's an old saying. I've heard it my whole life. You are what you what you eat. <laughs> you are what you eat. What does that mean? It means if you eat junk food all the time, that's all you eat, you know, your body's going to be somewhat junky, <laughs> right? It's just, you are what you eat, right? But if you eat really, really well, which I don't, but if you eat really, really well, um, you know, then your, your body will tend to be shaped based upon what you're consuming or what you're taking in. So in the same way, but in a, in a greater sense, as we partake of the divine nature, it has a changing, transforming effect and impact on us. Now, not just in eternity. We are present tense, according to Peter, right now partaking of the divine nature as to the extent, to the degree, we're partaking of the great and precious promises of God through true faith by the grace of God enabling us to understand them and to believe them and to apply them in our lives. All right, let's look at one other passage on this concept of the idea that there's a, a final glorification awaiting for us, but there's a present experience of glory right here and right now as well. Second Corinthians chapter 3.
The whole chapter is really uh, one coherent point that Paul's making. And I'm skipping over that to just jump to the conclusion at the end of chapter 3. And I'll read from uh, verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, and for the believer, where is the Spirit of the Lord? Living in you. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. The unveiled face is an important concept. I'll just give you two examples, and one of them I'll revisit in a moment. But um, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai, having spent 40 days and 40 nights in the immediacy of God's revealed glory on the mountaintop, receiving the the, the Ten Commandments and receiving the blueprint for the construction of the tabernacle. And he came down the mountain and the children of Israel beheld him. And what did they see? Something had changed with Moses. And what they saw was there was a, a radiance of God's glory shining from his face. And it was not just like a mild, wow, you look like you've you know had a really good night's sleep and taken your vitamins today kind of radiance. It was... Um, so bright that the children of Israel cried out and said, you are, you're literally blinding us. You need to cover your face. We can't even look at you. It was that bright. And, of course, in Moses' case, it was a fading glory. That has all to do with the difference between the old covenant experience of the glory of God and the new covenant experience of the glory of God. Uh, the old covenant never meant to be an enduring glory, but simply a temporary glory to transition to the new covenant, which is all about enduring glory. But nevertheless, Moses covered his face and then he was able to function among the people. He would go in and meet with God and he would take the veil off and he would soak in more of God's glory and then he'd go out and he'd wear this veil over his face just so that the people could interact with him without being blinded. And then of course, the other aspect of veiling that it's meant to convey to us is the children of Israel, you know, when they they interacted with the Lord from the time of the construction of the tabernacle forward. They, they always interacted with a veiled representation of God's glory. God's glory was, was in the holiest of holies, situated in relationship just above the Ark of the Covenant, representing the throne of God, but now an earthly symbol or representation of the throne. And they never saw that directly. Why? Because it was hidden behind the veil that separated the outer court from the inner court, the outer room from the inner room. And even before the tabernacle, as the, as the um, pillar of fire and cloud was, was leading the children of Israel through the wilderness, and they could see it, they could see it, they could see the glory of God, it was still a veiled glory. Why? Because the glory of God was hidden within this pillar of smoke. So they, they never saw the full representation of God's glory. But here, let's continue to read. We all with unveiled face, now the veil is taken away. We're in the immediate presence of the Lord in this new covenant relationship of salvation. And as a result, we are being, Paul says, transformed. He uses the term here, I've mentioned it before, you're familiar with it. Uh, the word is in the Greek here in the text, metamorphosis. You know, like a caterpillar that weaves a cocoon around itself at that critical juncture in its life cycle and then eventually emerges from the cocoon and it's no longer what? No longer a caterpillar. Caterpillar's gone. Where did it go? It was transformed. It's now a butterfly. It's the same creature, but it's an entirely different creature at the same time. And so we all are being metamorphosized into the same image. Which image? The image of God, the image of Christ, from one degree of glory to another. So this is present tense. We are being transformed. This is our present experience of glorification. So what I want you to understand is, all right, you are a woman of God who was 
defined by God with his original intention in creating you. You were designed by him for specific and special purposes in this world and this earth. Then sin entered in and ruined that, messed it up, deeply affected it in a, in a, in a twisted way. But then amazingly, because and only because of the intervening sacrificial work of Christ, he redeemed all of that in you. He regenerated you, giving you a completely new heart, making you a completely new woman. And then in sanctification, he continues to change that. But here he introduces linking sanctification to the final stage, glorification. He calls your present sanctification a progressive glorification. Meaning the, every time you change, like you, wake, you woke up this morning, and because you're listening to this message this morning, you're being changed by the things that I'm sharing. How much are you being changed? Just a little bit more than you were before this morning. But because you are embracing the truth of what we're focused on and because you, by God's grace, are, are believing it and it will be applied in some aspects to your lives, as a result, you're being sanctified by this. But God wants you to see this is being linked to a staging process that's leading to a final goal. And he wants you to taste the final change in eternity in your present experience of walking with the Lord. Every change you make, you are, like Moses, soaking in more of God's glory. Not because you've been in his immediate presence at the throne in heaven, but because you've been in the great and precious promises of God. All right, now, with that, let's talk about the final phase, the final stage. What will the eternal state mean for your experience as a woman. You will be, you are being transformed, but you will then, when the Lord returns, and not until the Lord returns, even if you die before the Lord returns, you will go and you will experience a greater experience in heaven than you've ever experienced here, but you will not experience the final change until the second coming of Christ. But when that happens, you will experience that, and it's linked to the great event known as the great resurrection when all will be raised from the dead, both believer and unbeliever, but for different purposes and in different experiences. The believers will be given a resurrected and glorified new body, which will be like his present resurrected and glorified body. And therefore, living in that body, your experience will be different than it is right now. What will be the nature of that experience? Well, let me just briefly describe some things that are woman-specific. Um, in this final transformation, there will no longer be any experience or element of sexuality in your life. There will be no more hormones <laughs> there will be no natural marriage experience and there will be no childbirth experience. All right? All of those things are going to be changed and they'll be changed forever. Now, let's look at a passage in uh, Matthew chapter 22 where Jesus briefly uh, was referencing this concept that I'm describing. He didn't name all of the specific elements I just named, but they're all, they're all included in the concept of what he lays out here. Matthew chapter 22, and I think you're all familiar with this passage also. We studied through it in some detail back when we were going through Matthew together. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 23. Uh, just as a, a background point, he's interacting here with a group of people that came to challenge him, and their challenge was intended not to like, Lord, we have some legitimate questions about God's word and about the future state. These were men that had an agenda, and their question was designed as a trap, a, a doctrinal and theological trap. And they were hoping to, to make Jesus kind of like do this in public. Blah, 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 I don't know what to say. And of course, you know, 
You can't do that to Jesus, and they found that out. But uh, this is a group known as the Sadducees. There were two main leadership groups in Jerusalem in those days, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You're probably more familiar with this, the Pharisees. The Sadducees were uh, aristocrats. They were uh, kind of like the upper crust of Jewish society. They were in charge of the temple, and they were in charge of the priesthood, and they were corrupt to the core. And they were making money deals behind the scenes and power deals with the Romans behind the scenes. They, just, they were not good guys. But also, they, doctrinally, they were different than the Pharisees because the Pharisees believed in a future resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. Sadducees were biblical materialists, meaning they believed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the only books of the Bible, the Old Testament, scriptures that they recognized as scripture. They read the prophets, but didn't believe they were inspired by God. Only those first five books. And they also believed that when you die in this world, that's the end, that's it. There's no more existence beyond the last breath that you draw in this world. And so they came with a question to Jesus about the resurrection in the future state. They had their own beliefs already solidified, they're just trying to get him to make a, a doctrinal misstep and to make you know, a mockery of him in public. The same day the Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers among us. Is that true? No. This wasn't a real thing. They're just creating a scenario that they thought no one can answer this scenario. Now, there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died. Having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too, the second and third down to the seventh. They're dealing with a law in the first five books of Moses known as the law of the Leverite marriage. And that simply meant that in order for the continuation of the covenant... If a man died having no children, or even if he did have children, he would pass his wife onto his brother, who would then raise up those children on behalf of his brother's family line so that that family line wouldn't come to an end in history. So they're proposing a scenario where the man dies and she, the woman is remarried to one of the brothers, and it happens seven times, and so then now here's where they spring the trap. Verse 26, So to the second, the third, down to the seventh, after them all the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, this future state, in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. And, and they're thinking, she's legitimately the wife of all seven. How can you decide which of the seven? There's no way to answer this. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, meaning you don't understand what God has actually said about the resurrection. You fail to comprehend that. And number two, you don't understand the transforming power of the actual resurrected state, what God does in that future state in which he completely and totally transforms us. You don't understand the difference between life now and life then because of God's power. For in the resurrection, now Jesus is giving an explanation about the future state. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And then he goes on to give further, a further point that they didn't even ask about, uh, which is he is going to prove to them from an unexpected passage of scripture the reality that there is a future resurrection. Uh, that's not so much the point so, uh, of our study, so I'm going to stop here at verse 30. So what does this teach us about the future state? In some sense, when you are resurrected from the dead and given this glorified body that I briefly have mentioned, uh, when you are in the final and future state, it's going to be like the experience of angels now doesn't mean you'll be identical to an angel. And of course, based upon old and, and unbiblical traditions, it certainly doesn't mean, and Jesus was not implying, that you will become an angel yourself. 
human beings, glorified, resurrected human beings will not ever be angels and angels will never be human beings. Those are two different categories of God's creation and there is a dividing line between them. But he does compare our experience in the future state to the present experience of angels. So what is the present experience of angels? Well, they are, they are powerful, as it's described in various places in Scripture, beyond our present experience or comprehension. They're powerful, and we see Jesus in his resurrection state we see him in his resurrection appearances acting like an angel acts. For instance, you know, if an angel were to want to, if God were to send an angel into, into our midst to give us a message from the throne of God today, would he need to get in a car like I did this morning and drive here, park it, get out of the car, walk up to the door, ring the doorbell, wait for you to open the door and come in? Or could he just be here in our midst and proclaim whatever message God has given him? We know full well angels are capable of simply just appearing and then and while they're here, having fully physical reality and substance to them and then disappearing and we have no clear understanding of how could that have happened that way. Jesus did the same thing in his resurrection. In his resurrected state, in one specific case we know, his disciples were in a, a, a closed and locked room. They were in the locked room because they were afraid of the authorities hunting them down. And suddenly Jesus appeared in their midst. And while he appeared, he had physical substance and interacted with them in a physical way. And then when he was done with that visit, he suddenly was not in their midst any longer, appearing and disappearing. And we're talking about a, a powerful experience. That will be our shared experience in eternity. So um, let's then narrow in on the consideration of how this relates to you as a woman. Uh, it's an awesome concept that you will have that kind of power. You will be in that kind of spiritual condition and circumstance in the future and for all of eternity. But my question is, will, you, will there be such a concept as eternal gender? There's so many in our present society, there's so many uh, questions and debates about gender and, you know, the, you've, I think in one of these introductory studies, I think it was the very first one when we were talking about uh, God defining us as men and women because he is our creator, I, I gave you a statistic about how many, just the current count of what our culture and society is now saying the, the, the accurate number of genders is. Do you, does anybody remember the approximate number of how many genders there are nowadays, supposedly? Yeah, it was, it was like over 100 genders now. I mean, come on. I mean, you know, even if it was just three, I'm confused already, right? I'm confused. But certainly not over 100. Uh, you know the biblical account. Uh, again, God made humanity. He made them a specific way. It's, we're his creation. We're, you know, the, the, the only accurate definition of gender comes from the origin of the gender experience. And in God's original created order, there are two, only two, and exactly two. So um, will there be gender in eternity? There's gender in the garden. There's gender now, much later than the garden. But how changed will we be in eternity? Will we be so changed Will we, will we be so changed that before the throne of God, we will be like genderless neutrals before the throne of God? That's my question. There's only, there's only two options here. The options are you can say yes or you can say no. And the answer is there will be gender in eternity. Not natural gender 
in the sense of the things I mentioned just a moment ago, sexuality, hormones, natural marriage, childbirth. That's your present experience and focal points of your gender experience. But gender is more than just those natural things. It's a design. It's a, it's a divine design. Now, how can I be certain? Is there any verse anywhere in the Bible that says there will be gender in eternity in exactly those words? No, there's no verse like that. So what we're doing here is a little bit of what I'm going to call biblical deduction. You know, like Sherlock Holmes. You look for the clues, and then you draw a conclusion. You deduce a truth from the information that's available to you. So what information is available to us? All right, let's look, and I referenced this a few minutes ago, but let's look at a passage in Philippians. Chapter 3. At the end of the chapter, verses 20 and 21. Paul's writing here about our future state. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Meaning, uh, you may be a citizen of a nation here in this present world, but that is not your defining experience of citizenship in life. Your defining experience of citizenship has to do with heavenly citizenship, which, which um, is more significant than any earthly citizenship. It says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior. It's interesting. <laughs> you know, it's, like one of, it's one of those details we tend to just read over and overlook. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, it what? From it, heaven. heaven. From heaven, we await a savior. What does that mean? <laughs> I'm right here on earth, aren't I? Right smack dab on planet earth. Northridge, California, USA, at this particular moment in my life experience. But Paul says, and I believe him, I trust him, he's writing under the inspiration of God's spirit. He's saying that in some sense, you yes, you're living your life here in this world. Yes, you're a citizen of the United States of America at this time in history, if you're living here, born here, raised here. But in another sense, you are a citizen of heaven. Therefore, your real life, your greater life, your eternal life is centered there, situated there, located there, attached there, connected there. So you are waiting for the Lord here on earth, but you're also really waiting for his return from heaven. You're, he's basically saying you're living life in two places, in two states, two conditions all at once. It's mysterious. Yes, it's hard to grasp. In Ephesians 2, I won't turn us there, but he says, Right now, as a believer, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I don't feel like it sometimes, but he says it's true, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to believe that the, it is true. Now, and I just want to try to grasp the greatness of the truth that he's just proclaimed to me, even if, even if I don't have sensual experience of it, I have heart comprehension of it. All right, so here he says, Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it, from heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning we're waiting for the second coming of Christ. And this is what's going to happen when he comes. Who will transform, that's the same metamorphosis concept here, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. All right, so what we're meant to do in this moment of reading and, and thinking about meditating on this, this truth that, that Paul's just proclaimed is, what is, the, what is the glorious body of Jesus that he's living in ever since his resurrection? What is it really like? And, the, and something that we don't maybe focus enough attention on is when he rose from the dead, did he rise as a genderless, neutral 
entity? Or was he still recognizable as the man, Christ Jesus, though resurrected, though glorified, so something greater than he was in natural expression before his death, but nevertheless, still, was he still not recognizable as a man? Yes, of course, he's, he's recognizable. They saw him, they, it's Jesus right there in front of them. It's not, you know, who exactly are you? You're, you I mean... You don't even look like a man anymore. Not, you don't look like a woman either, but you're just kind of in between the two. He was still fully manly, but not in a natural sense. Okay, so how do we distinguish manly without, without adding natural elements? That's the mysterious part because we haven't been there yet. We haven't experienced it yet. But in the same way, <clears throat> his likeness is the model for our future experience of the resurrected glorified state because he says he will transform our lowly body to be like his. Does that mean that all women will be made men? No, I don't think that is the implication. It just means you will be as fully glorified as he is. So you will be, a in that future state, a fully glorified woman, a perfected woman in that moment. In other words, it's not possible to become a better woman than the woman you will be in that moment. And then you will maintain that perfected state by God's power for all of eternity to come. Now, I wish I had time. I, I don't, but I'll just reference this. Um, what is that exactly going to look like? In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49, we don't have time to read it, but if you want to reread it, uh, in your own time later, Paul goes into detail explaining what that future glorified resurrected body will be like. And he uses some key terms. Let's see, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six key terms to describe it. I'll just list them and briefly describe each one for you. Uh, that glorified body will be imperishable, glorious, powerful, spiritual, heavenly, and immortal for all of eternity. So imperishable means simply incorruptible and undying. That means there will be inside your glorified body no death processes taking place whatsoever. You know how, listen, even the young ones among us, I'm talking, we have some young ladies among us and some older ladies among us. I'm, I'm just going to use the example of the younger ones among us. Even among your, your younger bodies, there is right now happening inside of you, whether you like it or not, constant death. Right now, as you're, I mean, even as I'm speaking these words, you've just died a little bit physically. <laughs> Why? Because you have, your body's composed of billions of cells, and they're constantly dying. They, you, did you know that the cells in your body have a, a short lifespan? They can only live for seven years at the most. Some of them die younger than that. But the oldest cell in your body, seven years old, and then it dies and is replaced by a new and living cell. It's amazing to me that the Lord keeps some consistency in our bodies that people can still recognize us. When seven years ago, every cell that you see in front of you representing my physical body didn't exist eight years ago. I'm a completely physically new person than I was then. Okay, so imperishable simply means all of that process is ended. No more death happening inside of you whatsoever at any level. Second, you'll be glorious. What this implies, I believe, is <clears throat> there's a, a very important principle in the book of Leviticus, excuse me for my voice, the book of Leviticus. The life of the flesh is where? Found in the blood. The, your blood is the, is the life, natural life basis of your present body. You drain a body of its blood, and what happens is that body will die. It cannot live without the blood. The blood is the, the, kind of the, the life principle of your, of your physical existence. Your glorified body will have no blood in it whatsoever. So how will you live if there's no blood? Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 15, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. 
You'll be changed. You'll be transformed. So if you won't have blood in your body, what will you have? What will be the life principle of this resurrected body? The glory of God. The glory of God will, will power you rather than the blood of your natural present experience powering you. And that's a pretty, pretty good thing, I think. The idea that you're going to be so filled with the glory of God that, that, that it's just emanating from every, every cell of my being. Um, powerful. That means simply that you will not be subject to any weakness whatsoever of any sort or kind. You know, the old, <clears throat> you've heard me mention this a few times recently. The older I get, the more aware I am of the weakness of this present physical body. You know, I'm developing aches and pains that I never had when I was 30 years old. Never. You know, I mean, some people do have aches and pains at 30. I didn't. Um, but I do now. And they just don't go away and they only get worse. None of that will be your experience for eternity. Spiritual, what does that mean? Your body will be a spiritual body. It does not mean it will be non-physical. You will have a physical body, but it does mean it will be entirely non-natural. Spiritual here is contrasted with natural rather than with, with physical. Like the body of angels, like the body of the Lord Jesus himself. Uh, next, heavenly, meaning suited for the new heavens and the new earth. Peter in 2 Peter 3.13 just describes again that God, uh, when the Lord returns, is going to not just change us. He's going to change all of existence, all of creation. The old creation is going to be rolled up like an old worn out garment. And then he's going to unfold in its place. Not just a cleaned up old creation, but an entirely new heavens and new earth. And then Peter adds this phrase, wherein dwells righteousness. Meaning, as much as sin has seeped its way into every aspect of the present natural physical creation, righteousness will fully fill every aspect of the new creation, including our glorified bodies. And then the final descriptor, uh, immortal. Simply, we will live forever without any personal diminishment whatsoever. We will never be less than perfect in that final, eternal, glorified state. All right, the last question, this is just purely speculative, but this, I'm on, I want to share this for your encouragement. And this is from my own conclusions uh, of reading scripture. And again, this is a deduction, not a clear declaration in scripture. Uh, what age will you be for all of eternity once you receive your new and glorified body? I mean, some ages in our present experience are better than others, right? I was just talking about my experience at 30 versus now my experience at 68. And if you just gave me, other than the, the wisdom and I've gained from the experiences that the Lord has given me, which I would never, I would never let go of, um, they were hard-earned, they were, they were, they were well-bought with uh, pains and sorrows of various kinds. But in terms of just my physical experience, if you said, okay, you can, you can have the body of a 30-year-old or you can have the body of a 68-year-old, which would you choose? It's no, there's no contest. I'll take the 30-year-old experience always. I, I think we'll be right at 30 years old for all of eternity. What I mean by that is prime, perfect prime. So uh, 30 years old is a special number throughout the story of the important figures throughout scripture. Uh, for instance, just as an example, a couple of examples, King David became king at 30. Uh, the Lord Jesus began his public ministry at age 30. He was well equipped. He could have started at 29, don't you think? in terms of just being prepared and qualified. But he chose 30 intentionally and purposefully because it's the biblical age. The, the priests that served in God's temple were not allowed to enter into full service of their priesthood until they were age 30. So it's the, it's the perfected... Uh, uh, you've lived long enough to have the benefit of, of maturity, fully realized, but you're still in the physical prime of your life. So I think it'll be somewhere right around there. Uh, the best example I can give you is you will be Eve's age 
When God created Eve, did he create her as a one-year-old, seven-year-old? We don't know her age at the point of creation because she hadn't. Normally, we think of age in terms of a number of years, you know, days you've lived in this world. He created her as a fully mature woman, just like he created Adam as a fully mature man. I personally believe they were both created at 30 years old, and then they went on to live long and extended lives. I'm talking about 30 not in terms of experience, but in terms of, of full, fullness of physical maturity. The only, the only difference is, um, even though Eve was in her prime, things got only worse for her from there, right? The difference for us is we'll be in a glorified state and things will only remain as perfect as they are in that moment when the Lord establishes you in that glorified state. All right, that brings us to the end of our, our studies through biblical womanhood. I hope some of this has been beneficial to you and uh, hopefully an encouragement and a, uh, a sense of exhortation moving you forward in your walk with the Lord with renewed perspective as well. God bless you. Thank you.